come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. to episode number 55 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, your tour guide here, David Garrett Jr., recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And on this episode is going to be Italian Horror number 6. My second feature review is going to be from Italy of Tale of Tales. And then what I ended up pairing up with it is a film, I believe from south korea that is from this year of monstrum as i felt like those kind of paired in a somewhat similar type of way and then for mini reviews i watched the shining calvaire tusk dumplings and fatal attraction now i do know some of those or uh, the last one's not necessarily a horror film so i don't go too deep into that one and then of course i've actually watched the shining not too long ago so that's just another one that I kind of delve into that is kind of give some you know basic stuff there but that is what I really kind of wanted to get you up to speed on it's been a little bit more of a normal week I didn't watch anything from 1960 but I'm gonna end up doing two of those for the next episode as well but I'll get into that here a little bit later so I want to go ahead and do those I'm gonna get you over to a musical break before I get into those mini reviews and I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me I eat Aunt the Pasta twice just because she is so nice, Angelina. Angelina, with a sad pizzeria. I keep soup and minestrone just to be with her alone, Angelina. Angelina, with a sad pizzeria. Ti voglio bene. Angelina, I adore you. Evil, you bet. Angelina, I live for you. And passion. You have set my heart on fire. But Angelina never listens to my song. I eat on the pasta twice just because she is so nice, Angelina. Angelina, the waitress at the pizzeria. If she'll be a my caramia, then I'll join in matrimony with the girl who serves spumoni, and Angelina will be mine. Mamma mia, 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 mamma
first movie i'm gonna do something very brief here because jamie and i end up watching the shining and i just recovered this a few episodes back as a mini review so i just wanted to say that even though watching this about a month apart this movie is still just amazing and i end up enjoying it you know even having seen it that much recently and jamie hadn't seen it for a while but we had watched doctor sleep together so she was quite curious and she ended up i believe enjoying this as well as it does fill in some of the backstory for that movie so again Nothing changed with my rating here. None of my thoughts really changed on it either, as I'm still coming in with a 10 out of 10 on this movie. So my first actual mini-review here is going to be for Calvaire from 2004. I do know that this is actually translated to be The Ordeal, and this is directed by Fabrice Du Veltz, who also co-wrote this with Romain Protet. This stars Laurent Lucas, Brigitte Lahi, and Gigi Corsini. This is a horror film that is a co-production between Belgium, France, and Luxembourg. And it is currently sitting on a 6.2 on IMDb and a 3.1 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, Mark, a traveling entertainer, is on his way home for Christmas when his van breaks in the middle of a jerkwater town with some strange inhabitants. Now, this is another movie that I heard about a few years ago, but just had never gotten the chance to check it out. I knew that it fell somewhere in that French extreme movement. It just wasn't one of the big titles from there. Aside from that, I didn't know a whole lot actually about the movie, aside from what I heard from Duncan and the other hosts on the podcast Under the Stairs when they had it on for their Summer Challenge series episode. Now, the main character is Mark Stevens, portrayed by Lucas. Now, we get to see that he's kind of a smaller-time performer, but is pretty doing well and, you know, is able to live off of this. Now, he's going to be going south. I thought it was to perform for another gig, but on his journey, it seems like he gets a bit lost, and it's foggy out where he sees a sign for the Bartell Inn. When he goes down this path through the woods, he ends up breaking down and meets a weird character by the name of Boris, who's portrayed by Jean-Luc Chocard. Now, this person's looking for their dog and... Mark decides that he's going to follow him to try to find this in, but it doesn't seem like Boris is really registering the questions that he's being asked, and he ends up scolding Mark for talking when he's asked not to. He ends up coming up to the inn that is run by a man named Bartel, who is Jackie Bear Roarer, and then he allows him to stay there, and he said he's going to reach out to a mechanic to help fix his vehicle. The thing is, though, that this mechanic never seems to show up. Bartel tries to work on his vehicle himself, but it doesn't really seem to be you know, getting anywhere, and we actually see that he's doing some pretty nefarious things on top of that. 
Now, Mark is commanded by Bartell to not go into the village, and he agrees not to, and then in the woods he finds a quite disturbing situation here where he sees Robert Orton, portrayed by Philip Nahon and his crew. Now, the longer that he stays out here, the more he starts to see that these people might not be, you know, all that sane in their way that they're doing and acting about things. We see that Bartell breaks into Mark's van and steals some items, is what I was saying, that he, you know, is doing some nefarious things. And this is just the beginning of a nightmare that Mark has to deal with with Bartell and his odd neighbors. Now, that's where I'm going to leave my recap for this one. As I said, this one, I don't really necessarily think it should fall into the French extreme movement because it's not as graphic as many of the other ones, but that's not to say this isn't disturbing, though. This movie is quite depressing, and that's a great way to describe it, and that's what I've heard other people say. The crux of this movie is that Bartell is depressed from his wife Gloria leaving him. His depression and isolation of where he lives has caused him to go mad. I can understand this, as I've been broken up with, and it's hard to deal with, but thankfully for me, I didn't live in the middle of nowhere like Bartell does. He isn't handling it well, so when Mark ends up at his place, he doesn't want him to leave and ends up projecting some inappropriate kind of thoughts and whatnot onto him. Now, there's another dimension here of Robert and his group of friends. I've actually read some interesting trivia, so I do want to see this movie again now to kind of see if that lines up there. But these characters are a lot like the people you'd get in, like, Deliverance, or those that live in America that live far out in the middle of every, like, out of, in the middle of nowhere, is that these people just kind of develop their own way of doing things, and what they kind of do would, in more civilized places, be considered to be horrible. It's just an interesting collision that happens at the climax of this movie. But this is really driven by the performance of Lucas. He is just interesting that we establish that he's not famous, but he does have a fan base in the area that he performs. He's pretty talented as well. I just feel horrible for him getting stranded like he is, and then seeing this ordeal that he goes through is rough. He plays that well, though. And then Bear Roarer does a solid job as well. Much like Chocard, we know that there's just something off about them from the beginning, but you just don't realize the depths until things go on. I also like to see Nahan in this movie. He's such a great look for a villain, so he fits this role, and then the reveal with him as well as his crew by the end. So I said this isn't as graphic, but that's not to say that we don't get some disturbing things. From what I remember, most of the actual violence is done off screen or just kind of lightly what we see, but the aftermath though is really what kind of has the lasting effects. A lot of what is happening though is really psychological demeaning as opposed to physical. That's not to say that we don't get any of the latter, it's just not in the grand scheme of things. The psychological damage is much worse. I'd say that the effects that were done here are practically, which is always good for me. Outside of that, I think the cinematography is well done. I didn't realize this until reading more trivia, is that there really is no soundtrack to this outside of hearing Lucas sing a few times, and then there's also this creepy tune that is played on a piano briefly to lead us into the climax. I would have enjoyed hearing more of that, but what we do get is quite haunting. So I said, this is another one that I really braced myself, but it's not as traumatizing as I was actually expecting it to be. It has a much more subtle approach, which is why I don't necessarily know if it should fall in that French extreme movement. I still found this to be a good movie, though, overall, despite, you know, kind of seeing what everybody goes through here. Now, I will warn you that I watched this in French with the English subtitles. There might be a dub version out there. I'm not entirely sure, but I just wanted to kind of drop that here. But my rating on this movie is going to be an 8 out of 10. And then I watched Tusk from 2014. This is written and directed by Kevin Smith. It stars Justin Long, Michael Parks, and Haley Joe Osment. This is a comedy, drama, horror film that is from Canada and the United States. And it is currently sitting on a 5.3 on IMDb and a 2.5 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being a brash and arrogant podcaster gets more than what he bargained for when he travels to Canada to interview a mysterious recluse who has a rather disturbing fondness for walruses. Now this is a movie that I do remember seeing the case when I was walking around a family video when it first came out. I didn't pick it up because it looked outrageous and then when I got into listening to horror movie podcasts, they confirmed that that was the case. It was one that I originally tossed out to Jamie to watch when I needed a body horror movie for October, but we ended up watching it after the fact as she likes Justin Long so she kept throwing this out there as a possibility. Now just to give a little bit more information here, we have Wallace Brighton who is Long and he has a su successful podcast with Teddy Kraft, who is Osment. Now, they end up like brutally making fun of people on their show. And so what ends up happening here is they end up seeing this video of this Kill Bill kid portrayed by Douglas Banks. And this video has gone viral online. So Wally is going to go up to Canada to interview him. Now, we get an interesting look at his life, though, periodically. 
as he met his girlfriend of Ali Leon, who is Genesis Rodriguez, when he was struggling. Now, they've been together ever since, but the fame has gone to his head. Now, when Wally gets up to Canada, the kid he's supposed to be interviewing has killed himself, so now he's struggling to find out what he's going to do, and this ends up leading him to a ad that he finds in the bathroom that he decides to check out, where he goes to meet this Howard Howe, who is Michael Parks. Now, he has a wealth of stories and is offering someone to live with him help around the house and he will share this as well as give them room and board now wally informs him that he doesn't need any of that but he just wants to hear these stories so he can put them on his podcast now howard doesn't necessarily understand completely but he still starts to tell him stories about when he was a cook on different ships throughout his life now he also has made wally some tea but the more he drinks the more tired he gets and then he ends up waking up to find out that he is paralyzed and one of his legs has been amputated. Howard claims this is because he was bit by a brown recluse spider, but we see that there might actually be much more to this. Howard won't let him use a phone to call home, stating that there are no phones in the house and that his cell phone broke while they were trying to save him. But then we realize that Howard has much more terrifying secrets, one of which is that he has love of walruses and one that saved him while he was in Siberia by the name of Mr. Tusk. Now, all the while, Allie is worried and she knows that Wally is cheating on her. She does seek solace with Teddy and he hates how his friend treats her. Now, they do get a voicemail that tells them where that he's been taken and everything like that. So they go looking for him and this also brings them into a very weird interaction with a guy named Guy LaPointe. And I won't share who that actor is, but they must get up there before it is too late. Now, that's where I'm going to stop my recap here. And I just kind of want to start off here that apparently writer-director of Kevin Smith came up with this idea while doing his podcast. And I guess that they were kind of going through some of the plot points and, you know, writing the screenplay or something like that. Because we do get to hear some of the recordings during the credits on this movie. Now, to break it down, we have Wally. He's a guy that, from what we learn, is that he was really nice when he was a struggling comedian, but then he's been become famous by mocking people, and he's taken on that persona in his personal life. He's a real jerk, and I think he does a great job at establishing that. What is interesting, though, is that I don't feel bad for him necessarily when bad things start to happen due to his attitude and just how he treats people. What I do want to give credit to, though, is Long, how he plays his character. He's usually this awkward, nice guy, so I love seeing him play this jerk here. And then on the other side, we have Howard. He's our monster here for what he does to Wally. He's definitely worse than him than, you know, for the things that he does. It almost feels like they at first want you to make us feel bad for Howard, which I kind of did when, you know, Wally's being a dick. The stories from the past, though, make me interested in him, but I never feel bad for him. Ultimately, he's a person with a horrible past that is doing bad things because of it. And then again, Parks is amazing in this performance as well. Now, the major issue that I have with this movie is its tone. This movie hooked me in, but I was a bit confused as to who I should be siding with. In the end, this is really just Allie and Teddy are the only good people. The major element of this movie happens, you know, much earlier than I was expecting, and then it leads into this comedy too much with Guy, and then that bogged the movie down. I checked out after that moment, and I mean, I end up hated what they're doing there. It does bring me back in a little bit when we finally finish off the Howard and Wally angle though but it's everything in between there that I'm just kind of not a fan of and then I guess for the acting as well I do love how I said the two main guys are I do think that Rodriguez is quite attractive but I also feel bad for her she loves an asshole like Wally and sticks by him no matter what so she's really a great woman but just dumb Osmet does well in his supporting role I won't reveal again who Guy is but he's a famous actor I hated his role but his performance of it fit and I did like the cameos here by Jennifer Schwabach-Smith, Harley Quinn-Smith, who I believe that's the wife and I know that's the daughter of Kevin Smith. And then Lily Rose Depp is in this, who is, as you can tell by the last name's daughter. And then Ashley Green as well. And then the really last thing I wanted to go over here would be the effects. The walrus stuff that happens in the second half of the movie is great. It looks as real as you can get it, I think. And the idea behind the madness with Howard and how he sunk into this is definitely kind of interesting. And then on top of that, it is also kind of an intriguing take on the Mad Scientist movie, if you think about it. And I even got vibes of something like The Human Centipede. I like the cinematography throughout. Smith just knows how to shoot a movie, and I think that going black and white for the flashbacks was a good idea. So what I'll say here in closing is that this is really a movie of two halves for me. The horror that we get in the beginning and the end is great. The comedy that we get in between turned me off. Tonally, it just doesn't mesh for me. And I know there's people out there that love and hate this movie, so I do get that. I think the concept is interesting, 
the action of the movie is good, as were the effects and cinematography, so they have all that going for it. I'm going to go just slightly above average, though, as I'm being so split down the middle with the two parts that you know I liked and then disliked. And so how well this was made in the cameos is putting it over for me. So I came in with a 5.5 out of 10 on this movie. And then I watched Dumplings from 2004. This goes by the original title of Gaoji. This is directed by Fruit Chan. This is written by Pick Wan Lee. It stars Pauline Lau, Tony Ka Fa Luing, and Ba Ling. This is a drama horror film that is from Hong Kong. And it is currently sitting on a 6.7 on IMDb with a 3.4 on Letterboxd. And the synopsis being Aunt May's famous homemade dumplings provide amazing age-defying qualities popular with middle-aged women. But her latest customer, a fading actress, is determined to find out what the secret ingredient is. Now, this is a movie that I had never heard of until Horror Movie Podcast. I knew this was part of an anthology film of Three Extremes, and they decided to flesh this out more for this movie here. I also had an idea of what was happening, just not sure how it was going to fully play out. Now, for this movie starting off, we see somebody that goes by Aunt May, who is Ba Ling, is returning home with a lunchbox and is using this as a cover because inside of it there is something pretty horrific that she needs to you know, make these famous dumplings. And then we get to see a Mrs. Lee, who is Miriam Chinwa Yuang. And I didn't catch on this at first, but she is hiding herself from the residents of this apartment complex as she goes up to May's door. And then she knocks and is let in. And May creates these dumplings, and there's a secret ingredient inside of them that make people younger. Now, Mrs. Lee at first is turned off to this. But then, you know, somebody had informed her about what its properties are. Now, she has trouble and struggles to eat the first one, but then she finally does force them down. Now, the reason is that Mrs. Lee wants to be younger for her husband of Mr. Lee, who is portrayed by Luang, as he's not paying any attention to her any longer. And then we get to see as he comes on to his masseuse, who is portrayed by Lao. Now, she's staving off his advances, but we see that they end up having an affair here. Now, we get to end up learning that May is much older than what she looks. And later on in this movie, we actually get to learn that she's probably in her 60s. Now, she used to be a doctor in China before coming to Hong Kong. And she realizes that the secret ingredient that she's adding to this is aborted fetuses. Now, this knowledge of her being a doctor brings a Kate, who is Miki Yuang, a teen who is pregnant due to being molested by her father. Now, her mother, uh, who is portrayed by So Foon Yong, wants her to you know be helped by may but she refuses to at first now she does learn some interesting things is that this baby that she is carrying is actually the perfect ingredient that she needs for mrs lee but the problem is that there are side effects to this and mr lee ends up trying to learn the secret of his you know how her his wife is becoming younger now there's some interesting commentary throughout this movie here is i first want to start it off with that mrs lee was a young actress who married a very powerful and rich man and mr lee now i do know that this is something important in asian countries and we see this concept playing out here where women as they age become less attractive now this was also something that i recently noticed in the movie of the leech woman how they were pushing this idea so she's doing everything that she can to get her husband to notice her again even though she's quite attractive even when she's supposed to be looking older and even may points this out now, I also wanted to state here that Mr. Lee is kind of a garbage human being. He's having an affair, and it feels like he can do whatever he wants. And I just don't think he has any interest in leaving his wife, as he doesn't really need to, as he's having these affairs on the side. He really is just there to do whatever he wants, and despite being much older, he is aging more gracefully, as he can still pull these younger women. Now, I've already kind of had a little bit of a spoiler here that the secret ingredient is aborted fetuses. It's interesting here is that stem cells and the research that comes from this have been seen to actually have healing properties. That makes this intriguing here. This movie does seem to be pushing this social commentary on this practice and also falls in line with some conspiracy theorists' fears that they are selling these fetuses to people. But this hospital is performing a bunch of abortions each day and then, you know, they're selling them. Do I think that this is happening in real life? There's probably, but just not on the grand scale that we're seeing here. And I don't think that's something in real life that we're really necessarily getting. I do feel this movie is showing us that this is a bad practice and it makes these people monsters by engaging in a cannibalism. I will state that I am pro-choice, but not necessarily pro-abortion, as this does make me cringe a few times with some of the things they show us. I do think the acting is pretty good here. I feel bad for Yuang, and she's solid here as our lead, but slowly becomes a monster as she needs, you know, to stay younger. It is kind of the forbidden fruit here that once you get a taste, you don't ever want to go back. I think Ling is really good as this quirky Aunt May. 
I love how she plays this as she's a bit out of touch with reality and I think part of this is that she is older and she's just kind of had a long life so she kind of just does whatever she wants to and she's just odd in some of these loud outfits that she wears. Luang is a scumbag across the board, but I do like that he gets me in a reaction to give for him. And I do like Lao, Wong, and Yuang as they're all, you know, their roles helped around this out. As for the effects, they seem to do most everything that I could tell practically. If there was any CGI, I didn't notice it. What really makes this impactful a lot of times, though, is just the framing of things. You don't actually necessarily get to see a whole lot, but my imagination runs a little bit wild, and that makes it even more cringe-worthy for me. And the blood that we do get looked good, and there was one scene that also made me cringe with that as well. Now, as for the sound design, the soundtrack didn't really stand out to me, but it also doesn't hurt the movie. What really does work, though, are the sound effects. They use these ones that are just kind of gross-sounding when they're preparing the dumplings, and even more disgusting ones as they're eating, and I think that was quite effective, to be honest. But if I do have an issue with this movie, I think it's that it runs too long. It is weird to say that it runs about 90 minutes, but I feel like if this was a short that has just been stretched out to this full running time here, there just feels like there's a lot of filler in it, and I don't really necessarily need it, and I was bored at times. I think this would have been more effective to clock in around 70 minutes tops, and I think that would have been probably the best for this movie, or just keep it as a short. But I still find this to be an interesting movie as it's exploring some interesting topics that are in the news and the commentary that comes with it. I think that the leads are fleshed out in an interesting way that works for me and their performances work. I just feel like my issue here would be more just with the running time as the effects, soundtrack, and sound design and everything like that were solid. So I will also warn you this is from Hong Kong, so I watch it in its native language with the subtitles on. If that is an issue, I would avoid this one. And I found this just to be an above average movie coming in at a 7 out of 10. And then the last film that I'm going to go over just very briefly here is because I don't necessarily think it's a horror movie, but I think it's very close to it and almost adjacent is Fatal Attraction from 1987. This is directed by Adrian Lin. It comes from a screenplay by James Dearden, who also did the short film. This stars Michael Douglas, Glenn Close, and Anne Archer. This is a drama thriller from the United States that is currently sitting on a 6.9 on IMDb and a 3.4 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a married man's one-night stand comes back to haunt him when that lover begins to stalk him and his family. The first time I watched this movie was in college, and I got the movie channels you know, for free, so this is one that I ended up recording and then giving it a viewing because I heard heard quite a bit about it, so I just wanted to make sure that I was you know, kind of knocking off some of those more classic films. But since then, I believe that this second time I watched it was with my family, and then a third time here with Jamie. Now, we're following mostly here Dan Gallagher, who is Douglas, and he's married to Beth, who is Ann Archer, and then they have a daughter of Ellen, who is Ellen Latson. Now, they go to a party with some of their friends, and at this party is when Dan ends up meeting Alex Forrest, who is close. Now, they end up realizing that they work together as he is a lawyer and she is a like associate publisher or associate editor or something like that for this publisher. Now, while Beth and Ellen are out in the country looking at a new house, the couple of Dan and Alex end up stopping in to get a drink together that becomes dinner. And then at dinner, they flirt and end up having a weekend affair together. But then when Dan tries to go back to his normal life, Alex slowly becomes crazier and crazier. She at first tries to kill herself and then starts to stalk him and kind of just starts trying to mess with his life. Now, as I said, most people aren't going to find this to be a horror film. This is definitely one of those films that came out, you know, late 80s, early 90s, where we're getting a lot of psychological thrillers. that have a lot of dark elements, but don't necessarily go fully into horror. I think that this goes close enough to it personally, just because of the fact of things that the Alex character does here. And I mean, she has some mental illness and is dealing with that. And then, I mean, she ends up doing some of the things like killing the little girl's rabbit and then, you know, doing other things like that where Dan starts to get worried where every time the phone rings, he's worried that it's her and she becomes more and more crazy. So you never know how far she's going to go. I can see how people don't put this far enough because it doesn't necessarily have that tone throughout. I definitely think that it goes, you know, like I said, very close to that. If I do have any issues with this movie, I think that it runs a little bit too long. This runs just shy of two hours. I think they could have got it to like an hour and 40, an hour and 45. It would have ran a little bit tighter personally. But that's all I kind of wanted to really go over for this film is that I don't love it like some people do. After this third viewing, I can really see some things like... The character of Dan is just straight, you know, garbage to me. He's a scumbag. And it's almost like he wants to have his cake and eat it too. 
I also don't necessarily like that his wife kind of just forgives him. Jamie did explain some things to me there where I can kind of see where she's coming from. I just don't necessarily love it, and I think that for me as a male, it's a little bit problematic that I don't feel like he fully gets punished, but I do like how things end with Beth kind of in control of everything there. So that's all I really wanted to share for this movie. I came in with a 7 out of 10 for this one. But what I'm going to go ahead and do, though, is I'm going to get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. And for my first featured review here on this episode, I have Monstrum from 2018. This goes by the original title of Magul. This was directed by Jong Ho Hun, who also helped come up with the screenplay with Hyo Dam, who came up with the story along with Jiang Uk Bion. This movie stars Myung Min Kim, In Kwan Kim, Hyari Lee, Wu Sik Chao, Sung Wung Park, He Soon Park, Kyung Yong Lee, Kayu Bak Lee, Wan He Jo, Young Bum Kim, Kayu Bak Kim, Min Seok Kim, Du Hwan Song, Min Su Sung, and He Myung Yang. And I do apologize if I slaughtered any of those names there. This is a action fantasy horror mystery film that is from South Korea that is currently sitting on a 6.0 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd with the synopsis being Yoon Gyam is a loyal subject to the King Jong, Jong of Jishon. He struggles to fight against a monster that threatens King's life and a group of people trying to dispose the King as well. So this is another movie that hit Shudder as I felt like it was part of like a group. And I really like foreign films, especially ones from South Korea. And I'm also a fan of fantasy and historical type films as well, especially when they're incorporating you know swords, monsters, and things of this effect. And it also seemed like a solid choice for the pairing here on this episode with The Tale of Tales. But before I jump into, you know, kind of my recap and then my analysis of the movie, I want to share some of the notes about some of the people that were behind this. Now, the director here of Huh has directed three films, with this being the only one in horror and the only one that I've seen. As a writer, he only has two movies, with again, it's only this one and another one called Of Countdown. Hyo Dam co-wrote the screenplay, and this is the only thing that he's written for the screen so far, as he did come up with the story here as well. Bayan did help come up with the story here, but this is the only movie that he's done anything with as well. Now, the star of Myung Min Kim has been in 26 works as an actor. Before this, being in horror, he was in a movie called Sorum in 2001 and then Into the Monster from 2003. This is the only one that I've seen from him. Now, In Kwan Kim has been in quite a bit more as an actor with 43. Before being in this, he, was, he started off in a movie of Terror Taxi from 2000. And then there was The Plastic Tree, and then The Tower were the other two that he's been in. And then there is Hairi Lee. This movie is her feature film debut and being her first project into horror as well. So I didn't have anything necessarily just so much to go into there, but I did want to at least share some of that information. Now we start this off learning that there are historical documents that are stating that this is true, and this came from 1506. The country of Korea is in turmoil, and I feel that they are trying to unseat their king, or at least have been trying to do that, which has made things in their country even worse. It then shows us that they're herding a bunch of people to a cliff by a ravine, 
it is stated that they have the plague and that they need to be kept away to avoid it from spreading. So they're pretty much being quarantined. But then the soldiers that are kind of pushing them this way decide that they're going to massacre them. We then see a little girl as her mother is killed and watches on as these government soldiers wipe these people out. It then shifts us into a few, the future a little bit. There are talks of a monster that are feeding on people that is living on a mount in Wagson. It is being called a monstrum. That's what they kind of give it for here. I don't know if this has something to do with the language where it's just their word for monster or not, but that's what they're calling it. Now, the King Jujong, who is portrayed by Hisun Park, doesn't believe it, and he wants it to be investigated. This causes him to send a government officer of Hio, who is Chao, to go find this man by the name of Yoon, who is portrayed by Myung Min Kim. Now, he's a hunter and living off the land, along with Sung Ha, who is portrayed by In Kwan Kim, who is his brother in this movie, and then he's also living out there with his daughter of Myung, who is Hyrie Lee. What we learn here is that Yoon was told to kill her when she was a little girl from the opening sequence. He left his post as a guard to the king along with his brother to, you know, not have to kill her and then also raise her as his own. And it takes some convincing for him to help out here, but does agree to help. The trio along with Hyo set off with soldiers and a military unit that are trained to hunt tigers to discover if there really is a monstrum on this mountain, you know, existing and killing people. They do find evidence of people being killed, but it is pointing to something else. The more they look into this, the more there seems like there could be another explanation. And there are also cases, and it's kind of eerily similar to what happened in the beginning sequence, as there is a plague that is springing up again. It all comes down to this. Is the Monstrum real, or is there another ploy to destabilize the government and kill the king? So that's where I'm going to leave my recap of this movie that really gets you up to speed as to the crux of what we have going on here. What I want to start off here with my analysis is that this movie got its release on Shudder during a pandemic is kind of interesting. Seeing that this movie was made in 2018, well before that started, but its release, I feel like, is really capitalizing on the state of the world, at least on Shudder, which I have to say, I can't fault them either. Now, that is something that I really want to delve into a bit more here. To start, this would be a time period that it is set. It is much easier to do some of the things that they're doing, but then let's be honest here. As an American citizen, I've heard of my government doing things like they do here in other countries most of my life. Now, the Prime Minister here, who I believe is the character of Sim Woon, portrayed by Kiyong Yong Lee, he wants the king to be out, so he is doing these things like creating panic and spreading rumors to help facilitate this. What is interesting here is that one of these tales is that the plague that is being spread. We're seeing a lot of people in the United States who are clinging to this COVID-19 thing as being a democratic hoax to destabilize our current president. Personally, I think that's ludicrous, but that's what some believe, and that's where I'm going to leave that as well, as I don't want to go too much into that kind of debate. What I will give to this plague in this movie is it's much worse than what we're actually getting, because there are physical signs that you can see, like boils and welds. There are some who are being killed when they don't have it, and this is sowing seeds of anger, doubt, and blame to the current king. Now, there are rumors, again, of this monstrum as well. I'll be a brief spoiler here is that there is something here in the movie and it is correlated with the plague that it is spreading. I would have been fine even if it turned out that they're not being one or being something like this. It is interesting though is that earlier this year I rewatched the movie of Brotherhood of the Wolf and there are some definite correlations to this movie and with the stories here that are being spread as well as just the main stories of both of these movies do kind of have a mirror and do have some things in common there. What I hadn't had the chance to do yet would be to fact check if this movie, if there really was something like this happening in South Korea during this time period. I wouldn't be surprised as there are quite a few times where you get some of these like plague type things spreading, especially in this time frame that it happened because we don't necessarily have, you know, the greatest sanitary conditions back in the 1500s. So it is possible, but I'm just letting you know, I didn't do any sort of research to kind of confirm or not. Either way though, if it's not based in reality, it doesn't hurt my viewing, and I just think it's kind of interesting, though, if I could end up figuring out what is true and what's not here. Since in the beginning of this, this is trying to indicate that this did really happen to some sort of extent. And I want to shift this over to talking about something else that did work for me, which would be the acting. I thought Myung Min Kim was really good as our hero here. He, has, he was the best warrior that the kingdom had and was willing to give it all up to protect this child. He's reluctant to return and fight, but he feels an obligation to Myung, King Jong Jong, and finding the truth for the people of this nation. 
Inquan Kim is good to add some levity as well. He has some good fight scenes to go along with that, so he's not just, you know, a comedic character in general. He just does add some of that with just some natural timing from what I gather. Lee is quite attractive, and I like that a woman like her is, even though she's a secondary character, she's still playing a pretty prominent role here, which is not something you would necessarily see, because, I mean, there's things like Mulan, where we have a woman who's not allowed to fight, where, in this case, she's not supposed to, but Yoon and Sung allow her to come along. I like that Chow is a guy who's she's interested in, and he had some good action performances as well on top of that. Now, the rest of the cast does really well in rounding this out for what was needed. We do get some really good villains here that are within the government, and I do enjoy seeing that play out. Now, since I've moved into it a bit, I'll go into the effects here. I think the choreography of the scenes look good. If there are any issues, we have some times where they go to CGI, and that doesn't necessarily work for me. And there's some effects with the camera that I wasn't the biggest fan of either. Now, it doesn't ruin any of these things per se, but I'm just not a big fan. Aside from that, there are some issues with the monster. I like what they're doing with it, but they have to go CGI, and some of it just doesn't work for me. It would have like been really tough to make this done practically, especially with what they have it doing. But that is where I'm at with you know the creature. Now, something else that doesn't necessarily work for me is that it feels like it runs a bit too long. I went through the story pretty efficiently, where this movie, I think, drags some of the things out a bit too much. It clocks in at 105 minutes, where I think this could have been trimmed by at least like 15, and it could have been much tighter for me, and moved at a much better pace. That's not to say that I just like this, I just found myself bored a few times when I was watching this. Now, I don't really have a whole lot of trivia here, it just looks like this is, of course, the film debut of Hyrie Lee. Now, she did play Duck Son in Replay 1988 TV series. Her co-star who played Jung Bong also co-starred opposite of Chao Wook Sik in the Netflix film Time to Hunt. So that's really all I had there. So just to close this out, I think this is an interesting movie that has some interesting ideas that are even relevant today. Seeing this during a pandemic is interesting and having issues with the government with that as well. I do like that there could or couldn't be a monster here, but from what we get there, it doesn't look great. The fight scenes we get though are on the whole solid with some issues again with the CGI and some of the effects. The acting was good though and the soundtrack fit for what was needed. It does run a bit long for me and I lost a bit of interest for some stretches, but if I'm going to be honest, I still think this is an above average movie overall. Be warned though, this is from South Korea, so I had to watch this with subtitles on. If that's an issue, I would avoid this, but if not, I think this is worth your time, especially if some of the things that I've relayed here are things that you find to be interesting. So I came in here with this movie for a 7 out of 10, and so that, I'm not going to do any spoilers or anything like that, because I do want people to see this movie, as I do think it's worth your time. Not necessarily going to be a top 10 contender for me, but still worth it. So what I'm going to go ahead and do though is kick you over to the trailer of my second featured review. Every new life calls for a life to be lost. The equilibrium of the world must be maintained. Are you willing to accept the risk? I am prepared to die in order to feel life grow inside me. Hunt a sea monster. Cut out its heart. You will become pregnant. The husband of a princess can only be discovered through a tournament. What if I don't love him? You will. Where have you been hiding all this time? How old are you? Open up this door so I can see you. Show me what you promised. You're a prince. You cannot be friend of a son of a servant. If I ever see you with him again, you will both regret it. We have to keep this a secret between you and me. I can't go back on my word. I'm nothing to you. No one has the right to question my will. I don't know what happened. I changed my skin, I don't know. You're so beautiful. Come. No one will ever love you like I do. I want to be young again.
no idea how much I wanted you. And for my second featured review here, I have Tale of Tales from 2015. This also goes by the original title of Il Rancanto di Rancanti. This is directed by Matteo Giron, and then it is co-written amongst himself as well as Edoardo Elbanati, Ugo Kitti, Massimo Guadisiso, and this is loosely based on the novel by Giambasti Basili. This stars Selma Hayek, Vincent Castle, Toby Jones, John C. Riley, Shirley Henderson, Haley Carmichael, B.B. Cave, Stacy Martin, Christian Lees, Jonah Lees, Laura Pizzerani, Franco Pistoni, Jesse Cave, Michael Martini, and Alessandro Campagna. This is a drama fantasy horror film that is from a co-production of Italy, France, and the United Kingdom that is currently sitting on a 6.4 on IMDb and a 3.3 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being from the bitter quest of Queen Longtrellis to mysterious sisters who provoke the passion of a king to the king of high hills obsessed with a giant flea, these tales are inspired by the fairy tales by Giambasti Basile. Now this is a movie that I'll be honest, I never heard of it, but it was on a list of horror films to check out that I had made. I don't really remember what podcast I would have heard it from, and it had been on a couple of them I'm assuming. But it also popped up on Letterboxd as an Italian horror film that I hadn't seen, so I decided to watch it for Italian Horror Month, you know, to check it out here. And then this is a type of anthology where we have three interconnected tales that are involving three different kings. And then before I kind of jump into my recap of the movie really quick, I just have some featured notes about some of the key players here. Now, the director of Geron has made 19 films. This is the only one that I've seen and the only one in the horror genre. And then when it comes to writing, he has 15 films. Again, this is the only one in horror. And then we have El Banati, who is even less experienced, having only written four films. And much like the director, his only horror one is this. And then Chiti has 44 credits. And despite having done more works, this is the only one that is a horror film. In the same vein is Guadasso with 33 writing credits and then the only one being a horror one much like his co-writers and then for the writer of the novel Basile he has five movies that are based off of his works now this is again loosely based off of his novel but again the only one that went into horror now the, the horror genre we do have a little bit more from the actors Hayek has 78 acting credits at this time and then before this movie, she had been in From Dust Till Dawn, which I love, and The Faculty, which is also really good. And then outside of that, I've seen her in Savages, Wild Wild West, and Dogma, along with her voice in the movie of Puss in Boots. And then Castle has 88 acting credits. His first in horror was an intriguing movie called The Crimson Rivers, which I saw a few years ago, which I end up liking. He followed that up with Brotherhood of the Wolf, which I've watched quite a few times, including earlier this year for the Summer Challenge series over on the podcast Under the Stairs, and I do enjoy that movie. And then he was in a movie called Satan, this movie, and then Underwater from this year. And he was also in The Black Swan and Irreversible, which might not technically be horror, but is definitely adjacent. Then there's Toby Jones. He has been in 118 titles. His first in horror was The Miss, which I really like as much as you can. And then The Right, which I thought was okay. And then he was in a movie called Red Lights, which I've heard of but never seen, as well as he was in Barbarian Sound Studio, which I haven't yet seen, but that's one that's on my short list for sure. This movie, and then one called Morgan, which I had never heard of. Now, he's an actor that I really quite enjoy when his name pops up, because I think he's quite talented, as I've seen him in a lot of more mainstream things where I think he does an excellent job in those. Now, to get into this movie, we start off following what appears to be a clown. There are others that you know are made up to look like him, and it looks almost like a traveling circus, and we see that they're there to perform for the king and queen of Long Trellis, which is Hayek and Riley. Now, he is enjoying what they're doing, but the queen not so much. She leaves in anger when she discovers that one of the performers is pregnant, and then we learn that she cannot conceive a child, or if she's able to conceive, she cannot carry it to full term, so she's quite upset. Now, their fortunes change when a necromancer, who is Pistoni, tells them that there is a way. The king then goes to kill a sea monster, but he dies in the process, and then from this beast, its heart is prepared by a virgin, which is Pizarani, is the one that is selected, and then the queen must eat it, and then she will become with child. This virgin also becomes pregnant when she is breathing in the vapors. 
And then it is at this funeral procession for the King of Long Trellis that we get to meet our other kings. Now, there's the King of Strongcliff, who is Castle, who we get to see kind of gives in to the lust of the flesh. And then there is also the King of High Hills, who is Jones, who has a daughter with him. Now, from there, the movie takes us 16 years into the future. The Queen of Long Trellis has a son of Elias, who is Christian Lees. And I should also point out here, he's albino. He has befriended Jonah, who is portrayed by his actual twin brother in real life of Jonah Lees, who looks exactly like him. The queen forbids the two from being friends and threatens to send the commoner away if they do not heed her warnings. The two are connected, though, much more than she realizes. Then there's the king of Strongcliff, who continues to live his life of debauchery. He's entranced when he hears the singing of Dora, who is portrayed by Haley Carmichael. When he goes to see her, she refuses to open the door. The reason is that she's actually old and quite ugly. She lives with her sister of Ima, who is portrayed by Shirley Henderson. They come up a way of staving off the king, but in the end, he's going to want to see the woman with the beautiful singing voice. She isn't what he's expecting, though, and Ima doesn't you know, really want it going too far. She will, though, if it means losing her sister. And then there is the story of King of High Hills. His daughter grows up to be Violet, portrayed by Cave. Now, she's heard the beautiful tales of knights and chivalry. Her father doesn't want to lose her, but he becomes obsessed with this magical flea. Now, it grows to monstrous size, but is unable to support itself. He sees a way to ensure that he never loses his daughter, but this backfires when an ogre, portrayed by Gilmani Dilani, enters to guess what the hide is that is being displayed. Now, that's where I'm going to leave my recap of this movie. That gets you up to speed with these three stories that will follow without giving away too much. I didn't know that these were fairy tales from Italy, but I thought it was kind of a pretty cool thing here. Because most of the time when I see movies from fairy tales, I obviously know the story having grown up with them. But these ones I'm not familiar with, so they're fresh. It would be interesting to see if people growing up you know, from Italy or even from Europe, if these ones are more common knowledge to them. Now, being that these are fairy tales... They are interesting cautionary tales here with a good message. The Queen of Long Trellis is willing to do whatever it takes to have a son, or even just a child in general, even if that means sacrificing her husband. The problem then becomes not wanting to give up her son. He's a bit young to be married from the looks, but she doesn't even want to have him having friends in Jonah. I think it could also be that he's royalty and the other one is not, but regardless. She does send him away, and this causes Elias to leave her to find him when he discovers that he's in trouble. This leads to an interesting showdown with a monster that isn't what it seems, and sometimes we become the monsters that we don't always expect. Now, the King of Strongcliff story is interesting here to have Castle play in the lead. He does so well at living this lifestyle, and I could almost see him being this way, because it's not that dissimilar from his character in Irreversible. Being that he's a king, he can do whatever he wants. When he falls in love with Dora's voice, she knows that, that he will never love her, but she likes the attention. Ima tries to prevent this and leads them down a path of destruction and ruin for the two of them. There's a bit of getting the taste of something better and not wanting to give that up, and then we also get, you know, what are you willing to give up for a better life angle as well. Then the King of High Hills is another odd one as well. He has this beautiful daughter. She's heard these fairy stories, as I said, of knights in love. Now she wants that. As a princess, you'd expect that he would marry her off to a similar family. Instead, though, this king gets caught up in his magical flea that he finds. I like the discovery is while... Violet is playing a song on a lute that she wrote. It appears that he's ignoring her, and which in a sense he kind of is. I don't feel it is intentional, though. He really has no plans to marry her off and sets up this game that he thinks is unbeatable. That is until this ogre shows up. Now, this isn't a monster one like you'd see like Shrek. It is just a mountain man that has grown to quite a large size and is just uncivilized. Now, this takes a strange journey to Violet becoming the strong woman in the end. Now, where I think I'll go next is the acting. We have some heavy hitters here for sure with Hayek, Castle, Jones, and Riley. They're all really good in their performances, but despite them being the stars technically of the movie, I'd actually really say more of Henderson, Carmichael, Cave, and the Lees brothers are the true stars of this. I really like Henderson as Ima. She wants to live her life, but Carmichael messes things up with the king showing interest in her. They both get punishments in much different forms, but they both kind of work in an interesting different types of ways. Cave really was good here as well as Violet. I think she has some of the best growth and where she ends up. It is really showing her losing her nativity and coming of age, which I do kind of like to see that play out here with this woman and what she has to go through. I'd say aside from that, the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed. And then also what I thought was good were the effects of the movie. 
this is visually stunning. I do have to give a lot of credit for the set pieces that they have here. They really did look amazing and it feels like we're in this fictional world that it is set. There are practical effects here which are also good. The giant flea and the sea monster would fall into this. Now there is some CGI which I thought for both of them but it sounds like from just reading something it's really just with the flea that didn't look great. It isn't overly important and it's such a small part of the movie so I'm not going to hold it against it at all. And then the costumes and everything were on point and makes it all come to life as well. So if I do have any issues here, it's with this movie though, it would definitely be that it runs too long. We're clocking in here at 134 minutes and it does make sense to run a bit longer as we do have to introduce three stories, give us a crux of what will be the downfall, and then having it end as the tales like these tend to do. I did find myself bored though near the end of the second act going into the third. It does bring me back in though and I think that there's some fat that could have been trimmed though in my opinion. So before I kind of close everything out here with my thoughts, I do have just a couple items of trivia that I wanted to share. This movie is based off the, the Penta Moroni, which is the tale of tales or entertainment for little ones, a collection of fairy tales by the 17th century poet and courier of Basile. The scene with the king of long trellis fighting the aquatic dragon was supposed to be much more dynamic, but Jerome had to make some adjustments. For instance, the point of view shots of the king, because the dragon itself was an actual prop and not CGI, broke down while being shown to his son and his classmates during a break. When Violet strums her guitar and sings a song, her clothes, hair, guitar, and the overall appearance of the scene recreates very closely to a famous painting by Jean Vermeer, which is the guitar player, is the name of that painting. This is the first English-speaking film from Jerome. Elias and Jonah are played by real-life twins of Christian and Jonah Lees, respectively. This is the second time that Riley and Hayek have played a couple. The first was in the Circa du Freak, the vampire's assistant from 2009. This story that Basile had wrote, like the novel, had contained 50 Neapolitan tales linked together by one frame story in a similar style to the Arabian Nights. This film adapts three of these stories with elements transplanted from several others, which is kind of cool. Like I almost want to read now to see what might have been there. And so that's all I really wanted to share for trivia. So I found this movie to be interesting. We have a cautionary tale here that I wasn't necessarily familiar with, but it feels fantastical with some of the elements like the giant sea monsters, fleas growing to epic sizes, and even a witch threw in there as well. It does have social commentary that you can pull from, even though it is a period piece. I thought the acting was good, no real glaring issues with the effects, and the soundtrack fit for what was needed. Overall, I just have to say this is an above average movie. It's one that I would be willing to check out again, uh, not anytime soon just because of its length, but as of right now, I think it's lacking just a bit for me to go really higher than this at this time. So I'm going to come in at this time with a 7 out of 10 for this movie. And I'm not going to do any spoilers or anything here, so what I'm going to go ahead and do though is kick you over to one last musical break before I close out this show.
I want to welcome you back one last time here as I close out here on episode number 55 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can send me an email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. If you'd like to read any of the reviews on this episode or any of the past ones, that's at horrorreview.webnode.com. On Facebook, if you want to become friends with me over there, it's David Michigan Garrett Jr. On Twitter, it's Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, you can follow me at David OSU, and all of the links for those will be in the show notes. If you'd like to follow my Instagram, that's at David OSU87. And then if you'd like to follow the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram, it's Journey with a Cinephile over on there. And then the last thing that I'll ask you to do is that if you could go ahead and subscribe to whatever podcatching device you're listening to me on, as well as rate and review, just so that way if there's anything that I'm doing that you like or anything that I'm doing that you don't like, I can kind of get an idea of that and to make this the best show possible. And if you also want to get in touch with me via email, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Letterboxd, Instagram, any of those things, I can definitely read anything that you send to me through there here on the show. And if you don't want me to read it, just let me know it over there. Just kind of wanted to get a little bit of feedback and get a little bit of, you know, listener kind of interaction going on here, if at all possible. So then for episode number 56, I am going to end up watching The Visitor as that is the next highest rated Italian horror film on Letterboxd that I have not watched yet. I'm not really sure what I'm going to pair with it. I do want to watch that film first to kind of see and get an idea of what it's all about before I do anything there. But I'll definitely have a 2020 film on there. Most likely not from Italy, but you know I digress at there's not really a whole lot that I can pick from from there. And then I'm also going to have two 1960s Italian horror films as well being some of the mini reviews. I've already watched one. I just didn't have time to you know get it on this episode so I just kind of wanted to get you up to speed on that so I really don't have anything else I want to kind of get into here so I'm going to go ahead and say is that whatever you're doing today I hope you're safe in doing it and have a great time this is your tour guide David Garrett Jr. signing off it had been a wonderful evening and what I needed now to give it the perfect ending 